0: Hello and welcome to Lady Time, a podcast for those of us navigating midlife. Today we have Jennifer Moore, who's the author of Amazon bestseller Empathic Mastery, founder and headmistress of the Empathic Mastery Academy and host of the Empathic Mastery Show podcast. She's a master trainer for EFT International and a mentor and healer for other highly sensitive empaths. Intuitive from the get-go, Jennifer experienced her first Prophetic dream when she was nine years old. And she's been navigating her extrasensory awareness ever since. Supporting intuitives, light workers, and creatives to use their own abilities for good is Jen's greatest passion. Jen, you're very welcome. And thank you for joining us on Lady Time.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Carol. I'm so excited to be here and to have this conversation. Oh, thank you very I am, much. I am definitely a woman of a certain age.
0: Great. Well, that's what yeah. I was going to ask you. So Jen is uh, joining us from Maine, which is Irish roots. So you can mm-hmm. tell that with your surname, Moore is Irish, yes. uh, I yes. think. But, well,
1: this is actually, this is my father's side. So my, my Moore is more on the Scottish side of it. We're, uh, Clan Leslie, um, from, from, um, Scottish, Scottish okay. roots there. Yeah. Okay. Um, my mom and my mom has more of the Irish ancestry, but I am. Okay i was yeah. raised with a great deal of pride for my celtic heritage
0: oh lovely lovely um my um uh, co-host the co-host on this show is jill mcgregor and she's got scottish roots as well Um you're very welcome and i'm very interested in your work but we'll start by asking you about your journey into midlife
1: okay um well, I mean, it's sort of funny thinking about it as a journey into midlife. I think in some ways it's really kind of inevitable. And yet it's funny how much as our our culture just fights it all the way. But what I would say is that my body kind of led me into my midlife because my body started to not be happy earlier than, you know, sort of like with perimenopause came Um, being, you know, more sensitivity to foods, more sensitivity to sugar, more, um, you know, not just not, you know, like less ease in sleeping, night sweats. Those are so fun. And just all of the kinds of things that made me go, something's not quite right here. And so for me, the, my body kind of led me to taking better care of myself because something, I had an I had a an, uh, an, uh, DO, which is a doctor of osteopathy, who was my regular physician at the time, and I was seeing her for a treatment, and she said something, I was going into my early 40s at the time, and she said something that had, I hope that it has as much of an effect on you guys as it did on me, because what she said to me as I was entering into my early 40s was that she said, you have one decade to really basically get your health. Can I swear on this podcast? Yes. 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 (laughs) You have one decade to get your shit together because there's the forties is the last decade of your life where you are not going to be, where you can actually like repair damage and create a foundation upon which your health grows for the rest of your life. And if you keep on sort of abusing your, you know, abusing your body with, which for me was, um, eating a lot of sugar and particularly eating a lot of sugar, but also not necessarily setting great boundaries that what would happen, she was saying was that if you, if you don't deal with it in your forties, by the time you get into your fifties, you are going to end up basically spending the rest of your life, putting out fires and dealing with like the consequences of your health choices at an earlier age. She said it more eloquently than I am saying it right now, but it was like, it was like a lightning bolt that hit me because I had been at that point in time, I had kind of been figuring I would catch up with my body at some point point. And when she sort of said, this is the decade that you have to get it together, it really felt like it was go time. It really felt like this is what you get to do. And so I feel like I was given this incredible gift by being told this because I started to make changes for my body. And one of the things that I did was I started to eat really differently. I gave up processed sugar and I, you know, that was sort of like the first step was just, you know, stepping away from all of the cakes, candies, cookies, you know, but, and even just like sugar in everything. And as I shifted from that, I eventually moved towards eating like a whole foods diet and getting rid of the processed foods and really looking at what was I putting into my body and what could my body tolerate and what could my body not tolerate. And I discovered that, for example, gluten was something that my body couldn't tolerate. And so by the time I got to my 50s and I was really menopausal, I was in much better shape than I was when I got into my early 40s.
0: That's My, great advice. Yes. That's fantastic yes. advice. I don't think I've heard that before, and it makes a lot of sense.
1: Doesn't it? I, yes. When she, you know, how when somebody says something and it just rings true, and you're just like, "Yeah, that's true." Like it no. wasn't truth I wanted to acknowledge, but I just knew it was true, and it was. But I'm so grateful for yeah. it because it really motivated me to approach the less because I'm just about. I'm going to be turning sixty on Christmas Day, oh. and so yeah, you're so. No-
0: Amazing.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I am I am very very lucky to come from from two families with good skin. And I also went I started going gray at the age of 19. So by the time I was in my early 40s, I had a head of white hair like I do now. So I think that also makes a big difference. But um
0: oh, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah but it really yeah. suits you the white hair. Really suits thank you. 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 But you're used yeah. to it. You wear I it I am red. used
1: to it. Thank you. Yeah. 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 So
0: that that's incredible advice. I've never heard that. And it makes mm. sense. It makes yeah. so much sense.
1: It really so does. So you really.
0: gave up sugar, processed sugary cakes yeah. and things. I've done that, but I'm only off at about 10 weeks and I'm in my 50s. I probably should have started in my 40s, but how and ever. It's
1: never, ever <laughs> too late to start. It's never too late. And, um, you know, I I a number of years ago, I actually had done an interview with them on my podcast with this amazing nutritionist who I should hook you guys up because she would be an amazing guest for you. Her name is Shannon Plummer and she and I were talking about the impact of sugar on our bodies. And she was saying that dementia, some people, some people in the nutritional world are actually looking at um, dementia, like dementia is basically kind of like a form of like, what I think she called it type three diabetes. But that sugar really affects us as we age. It doesn't just affect our bodies and cause inflammation. It can really affect our cognitive abilities, and eventually can cause, like, can impact us in terms of dementia and, you know, major cognitive failure as we get older. And unfortunately, I, both of my parents have. Had had dementia. My dad is no longer with us, but my mom still my my mom's body is still here, but her mind is pretty much gone. So that was another thing for me where I was like, if I can do anything to help myself to not develop dementia and to not have these cognitive problems later, I will. That's fascinating.
0: And thank you. I, 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 it's great to hear that. Um, it makes sense. It definitely makes sense in terms of looking at my parents. Yeah. Sugar is something they, they, they both love and something to watch out for. Definitely. My father has the big, well, beginning to show cognitive, Mm. you know, deterioration and, um, that's very interesting about the sugar. Um, also, the nutritionist, because we've tried to get nutritionists on here lots of times, different ones. They seem very shy.
1: <laughs> I will hook you up. <laughs> because Shannon would be perfect for this show. Shannon yeah. would be absolutely perfect for this show. Shannon Brilliant. I appreciate you that. Will Thank you will love Shannon. She is wonderful. Yeah. So that's fascinating. So
0: you, you started then looking after, and, and I noticed as well with myself, food sensitivities have flared up and that's uh, definitely a journey I'm on. Yeah. And Probably most people as they go into to midlife. Are you
1: enjoying midlife? Absolutely. I mean, for one thing, and if, if for anybody who's listening is in the menopausal stage, as opposed to the post-menopausal stage, I have to say that, you know, I crossed that Rubicon a couple years ago and I haven't, you know, I, I'm so I'm on the other side of menopause at this point. And it is such an incredible relief to not be on the hormonal roller coaster every single month, because as I, as a younger woman, I was so impacted not only by being highly sensitive, a highly sensitive empath but I was also really affected by my hormones and I was constantly being yanked around by that sensitivity. And one of the best gifts that menopause has given me has been um, an emotional stability and an evenness that I did not experience when I was younger. And the other thing is that I, when I was younger, I had a number of people That um, when I was before I was going to turn 50 in particular, a bunch of women said to me, you will love being in your 50s. They were like, you know, you will just love this because the thing is, when you get to your 50s, when you get into your 60s, you don't give a shit. Like you really stop caring what other people think of you. And of course, being in my like late 40s when I was told this, I was kind of like, really? I, you know, like like there was enough of me that was still quite the people pleaser that I couldn't quite imagine it. But what I will say is from my personal experience, I really find it to be true. I do not struggle with the same level of, oh my God, I'm going to hurt their feelings that I did when I was younger. And also I have clients who are, younger, like in their, you know, some clients who are in their late 30s and early 40s. And it's real and even mid to late 40s, where their concerns about what other people, like how, I just noticed they're much more willing to sort of acquiesce and accommodate than, than as we get older. And so I certainly love the fact that I feel a lot more autonomous. I feel a lot more sovereign in myself in terms of what do I want to do and just feel like I get to, for the most part, really put my energy where I want to put it as opposed to into either dealing with everybody else's crises or putting out fires or even just trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to be when I grow up?
0: Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. I love that. Cause that's, that's a question I still have. <laughs> what am I going to yeah. be when I grow up? Uh, but yes, that we have found that through our interviews that that's a common thing that everyone has come to is that they don't care anymore yeah. what people think of them. And there's such a freedom in that. There's a there's great freedom. There's such
1: in- a freedom in that. I yeah. mean, yeah. Y- oh God, it just, it's such, and, and I have to say through the last three years of this insane upside down world that we've been living in, having the freedom to not care has made such a huge difference because even things like family members who wanted to gather for social gatherings and events, like when we were in the middle of massive lockdown and people were dropping like flies in the United States I didn't like, I was like very clear about my boundaries. I was like, I am, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing this. I'm not doing that. And what I noticed was that for some of the women who were younger, they struggled a lot more with trusting their instincts and trusting their intuition and going with what felt right to them as opposed to, which could mean that they would disappoint or hurt somebody's feelings for basically saying, Um, yeah, I'm not going to go to your party with a hundred people where, you know, like with a bunch of strangers who I know absolutely nothing about because, you know, just because you want to have a party right now, like just, and, and just really getting clear about like what works for me, what do I want and be letting that be the most important thing as opposed to just trying to meet other people's needs.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I agree, and a, a great gift to get and to have going forward, isn't it? Just to check uh, in. What do I need?
1: What do um, I need?
0: Yeah. Um. So you are a master of empathy, basically, aren't you? In all all, uh, or empathic mastery in all mm-hmm. its forms. Can you tell me what what is empathy or what is an empath? And so,
1: and, and in, and, and in my experience, there really is a difference. So an empath. So first off, I just want to say that the word empath comes from science fiction. It is not a clinical term. It is not a diagnosis. It is a science fiction word that is used to describe a particular kind of being. And an empath is, and it originally came from the idea of a being who had the ability to Impact other people's thoughts, feelings, and energy. Ironically, but then I'd say the common sort of idea of empath sort of arose out of a Star Trek episode that was that happened in the nineteen sixties. That was literally called the Empath, where there was this this character whose name happened to ironically be named Jem, which was my is our, is my initials is Jennifer Elizabeth Moore. So I'm also a Jem. Um, But this character, Jem, basically, when Kirk, McCoy and Spock started, you know, were being beaten up by the bad aliens, this this empath would go over to them and she'd lay her hands on them. And the bruises that were on their body would suddenly come onto her face like she would get this anguished look on her face. And then suddenly all the bruises that they had would come onto her face. And then, you know, and the bruises would fade away in, their, in the extremely bad special effects, like stop motion <laughs> photography, um, but that, that the bruises would go away from them. And then she'd just crumble in a heap and and just sort of like pass out from all of the pain she just absorbed. And so that image is actually very much what a lot of, People who are empaths, I think, identify or would be more inclined to identify with because an empath is a being and it doesn't have to be a human. It could be a dog, a cat and, you know, another, another creature, but is a being who picks up the thoughts, the feelings, the energy, the sensations, the pain, sometimes actually the delight and the joy, as well as the intent, you know, like the desire, the intentions, um, the willfulness of the world around them and is more susceptible to just to being overwhelmed by all of the intensity that's going on in the world. But where a person who has, um, you know, who maybe have extrasensory awareness, but is like an intuitive or a, a psychic or a medium can recognize that they're picking up information that's coming from the outside world. And they're receiving that information, but they understand that it's coming from the outside. The thing that makes somebody who is an empath different is that an empath process the, processes the information as if it's their own. And so they get this extra, you know, this external information, like they're picking up that, you know, unspoken, unseen, nonverbal information coming in from the world around them but they're feeling it like it's their own. So for example, somebody who was very sensitive, who had maybe a strong intuition or psychic abilities could walk into a room or a house where maybe other people had been arguing or fighting or somebody had been really sad or really scared. And that person would be like, wow, I sense a lot of conflict in this room. I sense a lot of sadness in this room. I sense a lot of anger in this room. Whereas the empath would walk into the room and suddenly and go, oh my God, why do I feel so sad? Why do I feel so angry? Why do I feel so scared? And the thing about this is that it makes it really hard when you're picking up the thoughts, feelings, energy, and sensations from the world around you, but you're thinking it's yours to actually do something about it. Because if it's not really yours, but you're thinking it's yours, anything you do will often not work particularly effectively, which then leads you to the conclusion that you are or one is broken, that there's something wrong. And then on top of that, we come from a culture. I don't know if if Ireland is quite uh, as, as intense as it is here in the United States. But we come from a culture of a lot of emotional compartmentalizing, a lot of like, you know, just like shutting stuff down and a lot of denial about what's going on. And so many people started as highly sensitive empaths, even in their childhood, picking up information and feelings that were, go- was going on. But then the people who might have really been feeling the stuff didn't want to acknowledge it. And so instead of saying, um, Oh yeah, mom's having a really hard day. It's okay. I'm okay. I'm, you know, this is mine, not yours. You don't have to take care of me. What so often I have found in my travels, people who now identify as empaths experience, is that they were told you're too sensitive, you're overreacting, you're taking it too personally, you know, just get over it, just suck it up. That's not really happening. That's not really going on. You're making things up. You have an overactive imagination. And so what I have found is that many, many people who, had, who are sensitive like this grew up being gaslit and invalidated for those feelings. And as a result, often really do think that there's something going on with them. So that's kind of the first piece of the question, which is, what is an empath? And, very uh, interesting. Yeah.
0: Very interesting. I never heard it described like that. But it makes a lot of sense. And yes, we are very like the American culture in that Yeah, a lot of people were told as children to keep quiet or to oversensitive. All of the things he said resonates yeah. with, with our culture. Yeah. We're very like the American culture in many ways. That's very interesting. So the a psychic would go in and know... the room what you know what's different from theirs but an empath will go in and feel it that's very interesting yeah my own experience uh one time i my first case study as a working as an energy healer i was quite pregnant and i was training uh so what was i about yeah about six or seven months pregnant and i was just getting ready to go down and see this woman i didn't know her at all i didn't know anything about her but she had been referred to me through some friend, a friend's auntie. Before I left, I had these awful pains in my tummy and I was thinking, oh gosh, maybe I should cancel. Maybe I shouldn't go. And then I said, oh, I'll I'll just go anyway. And I went and I talked to the lady and worked on her. And the pains, I was picking up her pain before Mm -hmm. I got there. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a very particular stomach pain and it was just interesting. I was like, it took me a while to realize that. And yeah. I spoke to the person who was my trainer at the time and, and she told me how to deal with it. But it was, it was just fascinating that you can pick up so much and, and it's really interesting to hear you talk about the differences. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. Well, and you know, the second piece of the question that you had asked about the distinction between empath and empathy. You know, the interesting thing is that in my experience, a lot of times when we are in sort of in the empathic overwhelm, when we are, when we are an empath and we're getting flooded with all the thoughts, feelings, and energy from the world around us, ironically, we cannot have, sometimes we don't have a lot of empathy because, you know, empathy is the ability to perceive and the, for one thing, empathy is the ability to understand or perceive and grasp uh, a level of experience that, tra- that, that goes beyond or exceeds the sort of the, the known pers- the known things like it's beyond sight. It's beyond sound. It's beyond what you logically, rationally know that it's, there's, there's the ability to understand and grasp what another, another being is going through and have compassion to have loved, to have, to have that ability to really get it. Yes. However, Empathy understands that what we are getting is not ours, whereas empaths experience the stuff as if it is ours, which often means that we can get ourselves sort of so overwhelmed by the feelings that we don't have much room to have empathy for other people about what they're going through. Because if we're getting flooded with those other people's emotions, it can be, very hard for us to have compassion or to even have distance and perspective that we're not the person going through it because it feels like we are the person who's going through it
0: yes I understand Yeah, so that you're you're overwhelmed with the, all that they're going through that you have no observational part right. of you
1: yeah, there's okay. there's no detachment from it. Yeah. You know? yes. Yeah. There there is not that ability to have sort of to be the objective observer. Instead, we are just in this place of just absorbent and pretty much kind of in reactivity.
0: So, how did you get into uh, your work? I, like you've a lot of qualifications, I know that. How how was that? How did you
1: navigate? Well, so- So the, so the uh, subtitle of my book, Empathic Mastery is a five step system to go from emotional hot mess to thriving success. And I am absolutely the emotional or was the emotional hot mess. And so everything, everything that I have done has started with things were just too darn uncomfortable and I absolutely needed solutions because I was just spinning out. I just did not have control. And as a younger woman, as a younger person, even as a teen, I was struggling a great deal with a lot of anxiety and depression. I was struggling with just a lot of confusion, not really, very low self-esteem, you know, you name it, I was dealing with it. And It wasn't working for me. I, You know, unlike some people who have an ability to kind of limp along or kick the can down the road, I am being highly sensitive. Everything that I would do would have a, like, would really cause my boat or my equilibrium to rock wildly. Like, I think there are some people who can get away with, you know, like, they could have a, you know, a wine habit. For 20 30 years maybe have a glass or two of wine every single night you know and 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 it's not that it doesn't necessarily have that much impact on them but for me it was like stuff stuff that might work for somebody else for self-soothing would just like initially maybe I would feel okay for a day or two but inevitably, I would find myself just getting more and more discombobulated and more and more out of, you know, like disoriented and kind of like out of balance and out of my equilibrium. And so every path, everything I, the, everything I've done started with a situation going on for me where I was in some kind of crisis or just a state of dis- despair or uh, confusion or anxiety. And I needed to find a solution. And when I found something that worked, I was like, Oh my God, I need to learn how to share this. I need to learn how to do this because I, if this, this can help me, then it can help other people too. And, you know, the journey to go from basically picking up the thoughts feelings energy and and sensations from the world around me and just not and being kind of flummoxed by it all the time to today where i still will have moments where i pick things up but i am substantially more insulated from 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 the world than i was when i was younger um it really was it definitely was a process not a pill it was definitely like multiple coming to understand and coming to know. And for me, the very beginning of the journey of of getting how being an empath affected me actually started with an amazing therapist. I was really lucky that in my late 20s, early 30s, I found a, a therapist who was also intuitive and psychic and in hindsight an empath. And I would go into... A session with her and we would start talking. And I would say that probably at least nine times out of 10, by the time I came away from the session, I would realize that the distress that I was feeling was directly correlating with an encounter I had with another person where I had taken on their stuff. And so I started to understand that this had a lot to do with what was going on for me. However, even once I got that on some level, I did not get the, how profoundly it affects every aspect of our life. And so it's been very much a journey of uncovering and of discovering and unfolding and revelation that has in many ways been going on for the last like four decades of my life
0: great. I'm delighted you found that therapist who was oh. able to see all of that and, and feed it back to you, um, at such an early age. That's great. She,
1: a good therapist is worth their weight in gold. And, you know, whereas a bad therapist, sadly, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're not worth the, uh, you know, they're not worth the, the, the trash, the, the, the trash can liner that you put into, mm-hmm. you put into the garbage. But, um, you know, yeah. I, I'm a big fan of a good, uh, I'm very much a strong believer in a good therapist.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. So did you, um, cause you studied psychology, did you? Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes, I did. Yeah. I got, um, I well, so my undergraduate degree is all in fine arts because I started oh. my life in art and creating art and making things beautiful. And, um, and when I got out of art school, I spent, A number of years from, let's see, 1986 to 1994, I spent a period of time trying to make a living as an artist and as an intuitive and as a psychic, because I picked up my first deck of cards when I was like 18 years old and I took to it like a fish to water So, but the thing was I had no, I did not have really good psychic hygiene. I did not have any business skills whatsoever. And I also really didn't have any good boundaries. And so I was really good at what I was doing, but I was a complete young whippersnapper and I didn't necessarily know what I need, you know, like I just didn't understand how to go forward. So I, in my early thirties, I decided to go to graduate school and I decided to, and, and, but I didn't just go to any, any graduate school. I actually went seminary to pursue a master's degree in psychology and religion. Um, and, uh, that was just, I'm incredibly grateful for that period in my life. It was really substantial though, because to go to graduate school, I had to walk away from everything that defined me before. And I had to be willing to be changeable. I had to be willing to let go of what I thought I knew was who I was going to be because I had been cultivating myself and doing everything I could to, I'd even created a photographic tarot deck at that point. And so I really lived in an identity as like an intuitive, as an artist as a a teacher, a spiritual teacher. And all of a sudden I'm like, I may not do, I may never create art again. I may, I may never read tarot cards again. I may never, like I may do all of these things in a completely different way. And I had to be willing to, to be, to become a different person. Very brave. Yes. Very brave. Yeah. Again, though, I will say that a, th- a through line in my story is that I think there's a fine line between bravery and just really, really, really getting sick and tired of getting, of being sick and tired and just of being pushed so far to the edge of it that you're desperate. Like, is it bravery or is it desperation? I think in my case, often many of the changes I've made have come out of desperation and in hindsight can look brave and courageous. But really, it was kind of like I had just hit the wall so many times, all I could do was decide to turn left or right.
0: Okay, yeah, I mean, but some people stay in that place, don't they? They yes, just yes. keep hitting the wall or, you know, so yeah. I think it takes great courage to, to, to go into the space of change and I'm delighted you did. You were, yeah, psychic reading cards. Was that interesting? Mm-hmm.
1: Oh my God, is it interesting? I mean, I love, love, love picking up a tarot deck and rating cards for people. I, it was one of the first places where I was able to start recognizing what was mine and what was not mine. Like it became an outlet for being able to focus my attention and, and in many ways move from empath, you know, sort of that empathic overwhelm and just absorbing to having a lens where I was able to cultivate my intuition and my psychic abilities to see what was going on for other people. The challenge, especially when I was younger, was that in addition to sort of opening up the, you know, opening up the curtains and looking out the window and describing what I was seeing to people, I would often open the window, you know, not just open the curtains, but open the window and find myself really, um, feeling the impact of what I had taken on, uh, afterwards. Like I would be, I would often come away from doing readings for people or sessions with people where I would be feeling a lot of the things that we had talked about. So, um, you know, I had to learn how to not let stuff stick for me.
0: Sure. And then with the yeah, that makes sense. Then with the psychic stuff, like, would you have, would you have experienced a lot of spirituality, you know, sp- say um, mediumship, you know, where where you, people from who've passed over coming into your sessions or your readings. Uh,
1: so I definitely have a relationship with the people on the other side and have been able to communicate with them. And and so I have I, I don't necessarily publicly call myself a medium or sure. identify, you know, um, just because. For one thing, I feel like in my experience, the people you want to talk to may or may not be willing to pick up the phone and I, and sort of like, I don't, I I find sometimes, at least for me, that sometimes the term medium, I think brings up a sense of false expectation or hope. And so I, you know, if somebody's from the other side wants to communicate something, I'd rather just be a psychic who happens to transmit a message But I, one of the best descriptions I've actually heard that comes from one of my mentors, Joanna Hunter, talks about psychics are people who pick up unseen sort of paranormal information about the living world, and mediums are people with sort of extrasensory perception who are picking up information from the other side. And I love that distinction, that it's sort of like psychics work with the living and mediums work with the dead. And... It's just it's such a great distinction there. Um, and then there are those of us who just kind of happen to be sort of the doors are open and pretty much anybody can talk to us.
0: Yeah. 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 But I like that. That's very grounded. I like yeah. what you're saying. It's very yeah, you're very grounded in it all because it can be very overwhelming if you do get messages from the other side.
1: If you, well, it can and- be
0: very scary if you don't know how to draw the boundary.
1: Well, and that's actually the thing is that I, you know, a lot of people, especially when they're gifts, when they start opening up to their abilities and they start opening up to their gifts, I think a lot of people feel like the, um, information is, and, and you know, is, is kind of, or, or the spirits are the ones who get to kind of, you know, run the show instead of us. And, Just because we have sensitivity, just because we have the ability to receive information does not mean that we don't get to sleep, that we don't get to have a life. And so in my experience, you can have on, you know, you can have office hours as an intuitive, you can have office hours as a medium that you can let the spirit world know I am going to sleep now and I am not available for Aunt Sally to come and transmit her chocolate chip cookie recipe to me. Like, I am not available for this right now. If you need to go talk to somebody, go someplace else. And some of it is really believing in and trusting that we are worthy of setting these boundaries and that we can say, no, not right now. I'm off duty. Another part of it, though, is actually believing that that the world, you know, that whatever circumstance or situation or problem is going on that the issue has a higher power in its life and we're not it. Because I think that there can be a certain kind of false sense of, I'm the only one who can do this. Therefore, I have to stay up all the time. I have to be, because nobody else in my family can pick up this information. Nobody, like there's a way that I think we get into this idea that we are, because we are special, we are the only ones that are going to be able to do the job. And for me, one of the things that has been really helpful is just reminding myself that if I'm off duty, there are other agents in the universe that can take care of this, that I am not responsible for absolutely everything. And that, you know, that I am entitled to be able to like take time off. And I think that that's something that I think, in general, affects women the idea that we're just not allowed to claim space for ourselves. But that I think also is very common for empaths is this idea that we need to be because we can sense the crisis that we need to be responsible for the crisis twenty four seven.
0: No, absolutely, and we're, it's very irresponsible of us if we if we if we continue like that because we burn out, isn't it? We we need to be responsible for our own self care.
1: Well, and not only do we burn out, but, you know, the other side of it, and this is, this is the, you know, for any of us who are kind of caught up in the people-pleasing rescue, rushing to rescue, you know, um, codependent, you know, whirlpool, here is the thing that I realized, if you cannot stop for yourself, if you cannot make self-care an absolute priority and preventing your own burnout for yourself, then do it for the people that you serve. Because if you are... Out of sorts, if you are depleted, if you are exhausted, you will bring harm to other people. You cannot continue to do the work from a depleted and unresourced place where because your thoughts are going to be clouded, your perspective is going to be clouded, the wisdom that you bring through is going to be, con- is going to be compromised. And ultimately what happens is you're not on, you're just not functioning optimally. And that will affect the people that you are devoted to serving or that I am devoted to serving. And so for me, when I realized that it was not just about self-care, but that it was about being impeccable with my work and taking responsibility for the limitations of my human, of my human organism, like that that there's only so much I as a human being am capable of doing and that I need to respect my limits or I will cause harm.
0: Yeah. Great. Yeah. Brilliant. I, I I, can see you being very um, helpful to a lot of people in this world that you're very clear and bring that clarity to, to, to others because that's, that's fantastic. That's great advice. Mm. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much, Carol.
0: Yeah, no. And it's so important because sometimes, and I think it's also like women in midlife, we we feel we can do so much that we, you know, if we're caring for elderly or caring for our kids or doing our job or, you know, we take on so much because we can do so much. But then we forget to put pause. Hold on. I need to take care of myself for a while. I need to stop. I need to, I need to sleep.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 then, you know, so often the challenge with it, too, is that if we do not stop, it will eventually become a health crisis, it will eventually become, you know, an accident, it will eventually turn into something because in my personal experience, as well as my sort of anecdotal experience working with a lot of other people, what I have found is that we can set boundaries in healthy ways or we will, or the boundaries will be set for us. And I'd much rather create conscious boundaries than, you know, I'd much, much, much rather create conscious boundaries than, than create unconscious boundary or then let the, letting the universe create boundaries for me because in my experience the when the universe creates boundaries for me it's usually a lot more dramatic, like um Lyme disease is one of the ways that the universe has created boundaries for me i cannot when I am going off script for my destiny, when I am stepping off the path of of my sort of divine plan, I get bitten by ticks, like I will literally find ticks on me. And I have, I, I have had chronic Lyme. I've been really affected by Lyme disease. It's very, you know, and when I was younger, I would get into car accidents or there was a period where I would just inevitably like lock my keys in my car or lock myself out of something when I was at that point where I really needed to hit the pause button. But as I got, got to a certain point, it started to become like, if I was going too hard, going too fast and not stopping and not giving myself a break, my body would, my body would get sick. And the most recent, like grind, coming to a grinding halt, you better respect your boundaries was, uh, December, 2019, right after two days after Christmas. So like, you know, the day after boxing day, um, December 27th, I I was taking my dog outside and we have this big granite step. And I stepped down onto the granite step, not knowing that there was um, a sheet of ice all over it. And my foot stepped down onto the step and my foot just went pitched forward, like slid out from under me. And um, and then my body just kind of like like my whole body just went. I land like I like I I just landed on my butt on the edge of the step. But my head smashed against the back of the propane tank that was right next to the step. And I ended up with what I ended up with a concussion. Um, and the joke of this is that it would be caught, you know, it, it was what was caught, considered a mild concussion. I didn't pass out. I didn't end up vomiting. Like I didn't have some of the classic like bad concussion symptoms, but it was, you know, so the joke. So I always think I if that that's mild, I hate to think of what spicy would be like because it was a really intense experience. But it really, like, I had to come to a complete grinding halt. I had to lie in dim rooms and do, and watch no, and take no time for screens. And I mean, I work using screens, so I had to really stop. And the, the amazing thing is that if you think about the timing, this was December of 2019, by mid, by mid March, we were in full lockdown here in the United States and everybody else was coming to a grinding halt. So I actually had been prepared for the experience of what life was going to be like. I had three months. I had I basically had three months of lead time over what everybody else went through. But I also really got that for me, this was like If you do not respect the boundaries and the limits of your own body, Jennifer, then we are going to stop you in your tracks. And you may not like the outcome (laughs) Like, because, you know, dealing with the ramifications of a concussion is like, I'm still dealing with it. Like I still have periods where I might have a flare up or something if I overdo it and I overextend myself. But I will say that this particular wake up call has been um, like, like the, you know, like it feels like the the universe upped the ante on me with this one. And I've been taking it very, very seriously because I don't really want to know what the universe would throw at me if I don't respect the boundaries at this point. Like, you know, like I don't want to see them double down again.
0: Well, that's very interesting the way you see it. And I I agree, you know, when things like that happen, it is the universe telling you. And if we can catch it before it happens, you know, consciously, like you say, and make a choice to look after ourselves or make a choice to hold a boundary, that, yeah, the, the consequences of not doing that is, you know, can be quite harsh. It really um, can. Yeah, that's yeah. true. You've got so much experience, and I don't want to keep you too long, but I do want to ask you a couple of more questions about okay
1: yeah that well and I've actually I just thought had a thought if I could share sure. a, something yeah so one of the things that I've been realizing lately is that when it comes to listening to ourselves I mean I think for so many of us we're so conditioned to not listen to ourselves that it's very understandable that we you know that we don't necessarily avoid the crisis because by the time it's like we've been ignoring things over and over again And so I've been, I've been, I've recently been working with, with a couple people, clients on this around our listening to ourselves. And so I want to offer this to the audience. I want you to just like over the course of the next week or two, I want you to notice when you feel cold. And if you like, just notice, if you notice that you're feeling cold or if you feel hot, like, are you putting on a sweater or a jumper? Are you, are you, or are you taking it off? Like, are you doing something different? I also want you to notice when you feel hungry, are you ignoring it? Are you just sort of saying, oh, I'll eat later? Or are you, or if you're thirsty, are you ignoring it? Or do you take a sip of water or something? Are you honoring that need? And perhaps when are you, if you're tired, are you letting yourself go to sleep? Or are you saying, no, I need to stay up for another couple hours? And then also, and this one is really telling, how often when you get the urge to go to the bathroom, do you tell yourself that you're just going to get that, you know, that 15 more minutes of stuff done? Because if we are ignoring how our body feels temperature wise, if we are ignoring our hunger, if we are ignore, ignoring our fatigue or our need for sleep, and especially if we are ignoring our need to, to, you know, to use the bathroom, then How are we able to hear any, uh, how are we able to hear the even more subtle things that are coming through from our intuition? So I wanted to throw that out there is like, start, if you want to cultivate and develop a deeper sense of what's going on with you, start by going to the bathroom when you know you need to.
0: I love that. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Because we do, we, we, we try push, push ourselves beyond those physical needs all the time.
1: I, I mean, I still do it constantly. I am constantly aware of like, oh, I need to do this, but then it's like, oh, but I, but if, but I, I'll be late if I go use the bathroom. I'll be late, and part of it is our just our productivity culture teaches us to ignore our bodily needs in in sort of in place of like, you know, but that's going to affect productivity. Ironically. Yeah, it does affect productivity. If you ignore the fact that you need to use the bathroom or that you're hungry or you're thirsty or you're tired, the productivity actually is going to go out the window. So the the irony is what we're doing is affecting productivity, but just not in the way we think it is.
0: Absolutely. It's yeah. it's, it's very short, yeah. short okay. vision to think that if we put things off for an hour or two that it won't bite us come around and bite us afterwards because it will yeah, that's exactly. that's very interesting thank you that's that's i'm really into that that's great that's a great thing to if we're ignoring our basic needs what are we doing to the inner voice within us yeah, 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 our inner guidance. Um, I'm very interested in the Akashic Records because I don't know much about them. Oh, you're interested too, great.
1: I love, well, I love the Akashic Records. It's like, uh, it's, it's just, it's like a kid. For me, the Akashic Records are like a, a kid in the candy store. They are just so wonderful. So, uh,
0: Can you tell me what they are? Because I know a little bit about it, but our listeners might not.
1: Okay, so the Akashic Records is the term for, For essentially, um, the universal collective database of every single thing that has ever happened or will ever happen in all realities within all within the within the the multiverse, like everything that has ever happened, there is a record of it and the Akashic records or the Akasha or the Akash is the place where all of this information is stored. So the simplest way to describe the Akashic Records or to describe this is to say it is a massive database of the multiverse. And every single one of us has within, you know, every single one of us has records that uh, pertain to the lives that we have lived The lives that are connected to like our ancestral lineages and the ancestral lives that we have, you know, that we inherit from our DNA and we also inherit energetically from our ancestral, from our ancestors experience. As so the Akashic records, if you believe in reincarnation, it has all of our past life information as well as our future life information. But it also, yeah, it also contains all of the information that is related to us that is running, you know, that is connected to all of our ancestral experiences and our heritage. So this is the place where we kind of, you know, where we will go between lives, where we will go to sort of get ready. It's kind of, you know, so the, and many people experience the place where it is stored or the records are stored as like a giant record hall or a library. Some yeah. people experience it as um like a I've heard some really great just some people experience it as like just a beautiful, beautiful big, big museum or library. Some people experience it as like an old, like blockbuster video store. (laughs) Some people experience it as something like this, you know, new age, like it could be even like a movie theater where you're just watching movies on the screen. Some people experience it as like a big meadow or a forest. It is, you know, our creativity and our subconscious mind sort of creates it in a way that is accessible to us. There's actually a fiction book that I listened to that um Carrie the actress Carrie Mulligan um narrates called The Midnight Library okay. that is this it's fiction but it is it is spectacular in um in that it is in in many ways like it really describes the the way that the Akashic records work. Um, And I won't go into the plot of the story, but, sure. but basically she just keeps on revisiting possible, like she, she goes into the multiverse and kind of explores other alternate lives that she could have lived if she had made different decisions. And so we can get access to, because we instinctively, all of us instinctively know where the record hall is. It's like, it's programmed into our, we have like a return address programmed into our soul that is like that knows this place and every single being like anything that has ever been alive has sort of the gps coordinates for the record halls so we can go back to the record halls and we can examine we can ask a question like okay so why am i why have i been dealing with this issue around like visibility, success, and prosperity for this entire life? Why has this become so fraught? So we have a question and we go into the record hall. And most of us, in my experience, we have sort of our own little kind of alcove or kind of like little sort of like reading room for ourselves where we have, and we also all have record keepers, you know, guides and uh, helpers who will direct us towards the records. But then within the record hall, not only are there the records, but there also are all of these spaces for healing and for shifting things and for transformation. It's, it really is kind of this, like, I mean, it is like the candy store, but it's also in some ways it's kind of like the biggest library museum shopping mall um like uh university campus like just this space where if you need it you can find it there so i hope that is a good answer does that clarify what it is it
0: does that sounds amazing and do you, do you go there through meditation or do you need a, a, a special guide to bring you there? Like somebody who's, who's here once now? You, like you. So or once you've,
1: once you've done it, you can, or once somebody's taught you how to get there, you can okay. go there on your own through meditation. And some of us, like I personally knew about the Akashic Record Halls and started accessing the records before I even, like I'd heard of the records, but I didn't necessarily know how to get there. And so I was just kind of like pulling records out of like, and bringing them sort of psychically kind of bringing them to me and just reading them. But what I will say is going in, it is much easier to read the records sort of doing kind of a journey to the record hall. And as an Akashic record practitioner, I actually, some people will go see a record reader and what they get is like a psychic reading where the the practitioner goes into the hall, pulls out somebody's records and reads them for them and tells them what they see. My way of approaching it is that I I show you how to get there. I lead you to the record halls and then I introduce, I help you or we call on your guide so that you meet your guide. I don't introduce you to your guide. Your guide introduces themselves to you. But then, and then we go in, we find your personal space, we ask the question, your guide will bring you the records, and then together we will explore the records. And with many people, once all they just need is access to it, and that ability to like, they'll, they'll be handed either a book or a scroll, or in my case, I actually have really high tech record, high tech record room. And I've got like kind of like a minority report, like the really big like screens, monitors in front of me. And wow. so I've got these huge the holographic monitors and like holographs basically that appear in front of me when I'm looking at stuff. And occasionally I'll look at papers, but like I've had people where they will be handed like, you know, these little volumes, these big volumes, these scrolls. And then we unroll it and just look and see what's there. And often people will start seeing pictures. They'll start seeing images. might not make sense, but as we dive in, as we sort of go further into the story, it it generally will reveal itself. In in my experience, occasionally I'll work with somebody where they'll open up the records, they'll see them, and then they'll start second-guessing themselves and they'll start doubting it. And in those cases, my job is to share what I'm picking up on and sort of like validate what they're seeing because I can almost feel it when somebody, or not almost, I can feel it when I can see somebody opens up the record, they look at it, they see a picture and they start getting information and then they push it away because they start doubting themselves and going, oh, I could, that couldn't possibly, it's too easy. It couldn't possibly be right. And what I've noticed with Doing the record work, it's been, one of the gifts of doing the record work has been sort of the awareness of how our intuition works, is that I've been realizing, I would actually, I'm going to take a, make a pretty bold statement. I actually think that most of us have really rock solid, spot on intuition. It is not our intuition that is the problem. It is our self-doubt and that it is, and it's our second guessing because we think that we think that's because like because it came so easily that somehow it couldn't be right, and I think that more often than not our intuition is the very first answer we get it's that thing of we just instinctively know it immediately, and it's then that pushing away or pushing back and saying oh that couldn't it's that it couldn't possibly be it,
0: yeah, 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 well, that makes sense that's fascinating, and I agree actually, yes it's our self doubt our, our lack of self-belief that we've we, we don't believe in our first you know when we have some intuition I agree yeah I notice that myself that yeah. especially working with other people I I'll I'll go oh no I can't say that that's that couldn't be true but I, it inevitably is yeah
1: and how many times have you gotten a name and you don't say it and then they say it and you're like <laughs> I mean, yes. I can't count the number of times I've been like, oh my God, that was exactly the name I heard in my head. And then it's just like, yeah, well, you know, if you said it, you would have wowed them, but now you're just like, you know, it's sort of like daylight dollars short. But yes, uh, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Brilliant. Oh, I love the sound of that work. Oh, I'd love to do a session with you on that. That sounds fascinating.
1: That's oh, so delightful. Sounds yeah. Very
0: exciting. Um, and then the other work you do is um, EFT, which, again, I think is great work. And, and for our listeners, can you describe the EFT? It's otherwise, we call it tapping as well.
1: Yes, we do call it tapping. So and tapping in many ways is kind of the umbrella term and EFT, which stands for emotional freedom techniques. And the term was coined by um, the originator of, of the form that we understand it as now. is His name is Gary Craig. And he was a Stanford University engineer. And so he kind of took this very woo concept because basically EFT or tapping is, is, um, is kind of like a mental, emotional acupuncture without the needles. And what we do is we think about an issue and we focus, we sort of, we, we set our intention that we're going to acknowledge it and address it. And then either apply light pressure we literal tapping on the endpoints of acupuncture meridians on our head, like the top of our head, on a number of places on our face, on our torso, under our arms, and on our hands, and sometimes our wrists. And basically, by tapping on or putting light pressure on these acupuncture points, and while we think about the issue, we allow energy that had been stuck in our energy system to, or places where there's been sort of like congestion in the, in those sort of the um, streams or the channels of energy that run through our body. As we tap on it, what we are doing is we are loosening up and releasing the energy that has been sort of stuck and not flowing But the other thing that tapping does is that it reboots our nervous system and it resets the fight or flight mechanism in our brain, which is known as the amygdala. And so the problem with modern society is that as a species, we were designed to deal with stress by either fundamentally in two ways. There's a third way, but the two fundamental ways we deal is either with, you know, fighting or fleeing. And then if we're absolutely backed into a corner, then what happens is we freeze, we flop. But for the most part, we're designed to deal with stress either by fighting it off or fleeing away from it. And when we were, our ancestors were dealing with like woolly mammoths and saber toothed tigers, or even like, you know, an angry mob chasing after us. If we we were using, we were exerting energy to release it. And so what would happen was by the time the threat was over, we would have used up all that adrenaline to either run away from it or to fight our way out of it. And by the time we were done with the situation, the threat was lost, um, our nervous system would have rebooted itself. We would have sort of shaken it off. We would have burned off all of that extra adrenaline. But when you're talking about watching um, a stressful news report on TV or seeing a text message from your angry boss or even just kind of lying in bed and perseverating about something that's going on, the problem is we activate the, the fight or flight, we activate that stress, but we don't do anything on a physical level to to basically discharge it. And to like shake it off. And if you look at a dog, for example, um, I I don't know if you've ever done this or, but this is a really interesting dogs will shake off stress. And as you, if you, if you ever hug your dog, which I'm notorious for, like we have, I have a pug that I absolutely adore. But if you give her, if I give her a big hug and I put her down on the floor, the very first thing that she does immediately is she shakes it all off. And the thing is that if you look at animals in nature, when they go through something and they need to shift it, they will shake it off. I mean, Taylor Swift was onto something with that song, shake it off. Absolutely. We, we don't shake it off. And so mm-hmm. as a result, we are living in a society that is dealing with a level of chronic, pers, you know, pers- you know, persistent, uh, stress that just keeps on going and going and going and going and going. And what is amazing about EFT is that it allows us to reboot that nervous system and to stop that vicious cycle of just stress hormones flooding our body. Because when the amygdala is sort of in that perpetually open state, it's like one little bit of stress reinforces another little bit of stress, and we're just in this tr- cascade of getting triggered and, you know, more and more and more and more stressed, which also causes massive health issues. It causes inflammation. Ultimately, it can cause, you know, autoimmune issues. It can cause food sensitivities. And ultimately, like, you know, the big three, cancer, strokes, and heart attacks.
0: Yes. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so tapping then releases the stuff that we haven't released or haven't shook off. And you're right. Dogs are fantastic. They get up and they do good shake. not just when they're wet, but they shake, shake their whole. Yeah. My dog has passed, but when she was around, she was good for shaking. And they take on our stress, like probably your your pug is. When you give it a hug, it takes on your stress. And yeah, it exactly. Takes it off.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think she also just, I don't think, dog, I don't think that dogs in particular like to be hugged. Like they love, okay. I mean, she will, she is really happy. Like she will literally, she, I call her my weighted blanket because she literally sleeps on top of me all night. She loves being curled up right next to me. She likes to be in my lap, but that kind of like, you know, embracing is not her idea of a good time. And, so so far, I've yet to meet a dog that likes to be hugged. You know, I've, I've seen. And it's a funny thing because I had no idea until somebody alerted me to this. But if for those of you who have a dog, assuming that your dog is well behaved enough that you can hug them and it's not going to be an issue. Just try this, like hug your dog and see what they do. It's really <laughs> interesting to see how quickly they shake it off.
0: Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. That's great. I will try that with uh, the next dog that comes into my company. Yes. Um, That's great. Jennifer, uh, or Jen, I'm very grateful for your generosity this evening, for coming on and for all that you've shared. You have so much wonderful information and you're very articulate and very kind. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. Who do you see then? You see empaths. Are they people working in the field of therapy? Are they... People, anybody or who who are your clients?
1: Uh, my clients are the, so, so this may sound like a, like a cop out, but what I would say is my clients are the people who are called to work with me. And most okay. of my clients are, are, are empaths. Most of my clients identify as some of them identify as creative as opposed to empath. One of the things that I've, and many of the clients that I work with are either like working in some kind of creative service-oriented field. I Some people, a number of clients I work with are sort of retired from the human service sector or um, various things. So what somebody does as a career is not like it runs the gamut. But sure. the people that I work with are people who a lot of times The people that I work with have tried the ordinary methods. They've tried other things and it hasn't worked like just they haven't been able to necessarily get the headway that they they need. And so they're like, you know what? I'm willing to try something different. The other thing about every single person that I work with is that every client that I work with has an incredible willingness to take responsibility for their stuff. And is like, I under, they understand that, that I can help, but they're the ones who have to be willing. And so there's a, there's a certain enthusiasm and willingness and, and, and desire to know oneself more that I would say the people who find their way to me have. But um Thanks. most of my clients are female, but that is not, it's not exclusive. And generally, I mean, I do, individual work with people sort of private personal work with people and it could be around a uh, health issue it could be around around sort of trying to get uh you know an eating disorder under control it could be around noticing or knowing that they're dealing with a lot of empathic sensitivity and how to manage that or navigate that I mean, it's really like, what is going on for you? And I'll, I talk with people before we commit to working together to see if it really feels like a good fit and I can help them. Um, but then I also teach uh, and do one level one and two EFT practitioner training a year to help people to become really impeccable EFT practitioners. And many of the people who I am, you know, who I'm a master trainer for are either coaches They are, or they've been in the healthcare industry, or they've been a therapist of some sort or a teacher of some sort. Um, Some of them have been artists, but everybody who comes is like, either wants to develop their skills as a practice, you know, to know EFT for their own benefit, sort of for friends and family and themselves, or they're like, I love this and I want to share it with other people and I want to use it in my world and so so sort of i have kind of like the two sides working with people to support them and then teaching people how to support other people
0: great great yes yeah. so and and you have wonderful skills so um i will get from you and i'll put it up on the show notes how people can contact you and you're super tech savvy so uh i presume you work with people like this on zoom
1: I do work with people on Zoom and um I yes, I am thankfully very tech savvy, although uh it, that doesn't necessarily mean that I know what to do when I'm getting server errors with my with my website. So um okay. you know, yeah, there have been a couple little glitches, but the really simple way to get in touch with me is just empathicmastery dot com. And the book you can access at EmpathicMasteryBook dot com, and if you want to listen to the podcast, that's Show dot com. And for and if you're like, I need to learn how to do EFT, and I want to do it with this person, then it's instruction dot com. So those are all the ways to get in touch with me.
0: Fantastic, thank you, and yeah. I'll put all those up in the show notes. Jen, thank you so much for for all that you've shared with us today. Oh. It's been really, I've been really, I don't know how to say grateful, but appreciate you and uh, all that. I, I just really love the work you do. I love listening to you. So I'll definitely be listening to your podcast. Thank you for coming on. We're, maybe we'll talk to you again as well. We never know.
1: That would be Thank delightful, you. Carol. And you're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And I just have to say, like, it just feels like it, this was a divine appointment. Like I literally reached out to you Like the day before yesterday, you reached back and was like, hey, I got this opening. Can you do this? And I was like, yeah, actually, like if you can just adjust it slightly, I could be there at this time. And so I just, it really feels like this was an absolute divine appointment. It was meant to happen. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a real, real pleasure chatting with you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for your generosity, because I I just feel like everything you spoke about is so knowledgeable and i feel very appreciative thank you very much
1: you're so welcome
0: um you have been listening to lady time if you uh, like what you hear please share with your friends and myself and jill will be back soon with more interviews thank you for listening